I'm Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm with my very good friend, Ambassador Jim Michael. Ambassador Michael was a former U.S. Ambassador to Guatemala. He ran the DAC, the Development Assistance Committee, at the OECD. The DAC, as is Ambassador Michael always hears me explain it, is the Major League Baseball Commission of Foreign Assistance. It's a very important mm. but not as mm. well-known institution as it should be known. Ambassador Michael then had a fabulous career at AID, in addition to his, his career at the State Department, running and leading a number of important parts of AID, including the Latin America Bureau at one point, and then he was counselor to the administrator at least once, maybe twice, and has been called out of retirement. And so we've been, we've been very blessed and very fortunate at CSIS to have Ambassador Michael's presence, experience, and expertise over a, about a five or six year period. It's been a wonderful partnership, and I've been very grateful that he's invested so much of his time, prestige, and experience with us. Ambassador Michael mm -hmm. has done two major reports with us. One was on called Beyond Aid, and this one is about, it's got a much longer title called Managing Fragility and Promoting Resilience to Advance Peace, Security, and Sustainable Development. The third one will be a shorter title, right, Ambassador Michael? That's absolutely right. But but the point of those, this report that you just published and why I wanted to do this podcast with you, tell us what does that long title mean and what is this, this report about? Okay, well, Dan, thank you very much uh, for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate the support I've gotten from you and from CSIS in uh, trying to uh, address some of these tough issues that affect security as well as development and what kind of a world we want to have. This report was inspired partially by the realization that there's a lot of emphasis on the countries that are doing well and what we can do to help them move from being middle-income countries to being more developed countries. And yet at the same time, some of the biggest threats to security and to development uh, are found in the countries that are having trouble. The countries that are experiencing weak governance, limited institutional capacity, low social cohesion, inadequate legitimacy and, and a feeling by the people that they are a part of the same society. And where these conditions exist, the countries involved are vulnerable to political instability, to conflict, to forced migration, to infiltration by criminal and terrorist organizations. And those conditions spill over beyond national borders and create risks for all of us. So if we want to see the dream of the Sustainable Development Goals, eliminating extreme poverty. If we want to see the conditions in the world, one in which we have more countries that are stable partners and have shared interests, and we want to see less conflict and less risk of terrorism, these mixed security, political, and development issues need to pay attention to the states that are having trouble. Uh, Ambassador, I totally agree. I'd say a lot of the work we've done has been about the happier countries. I'd, I'd mm -hmm. argue there's sort of 60 to 80 countries that are on a happier trajectory. They're on their way to becoming the next South Koreas. But we've got sort of these 30 to 40 stubborn, stubbornly complex, depending on how you slice it. There's, and then you did some very interesting work in the report looking at sort of there are seven different 
I think there were seven different ways to slice and dice fragile states, different organizations. I think the World Bank had one, one version, the Fund for Peace had another, and, and it was it's very interesting in the report. But uh, let me just say one other thing, which was that so that I think if we care about if we care about our national, we worried about like you said, if we worried about terrorism, if we're worried about pandemics, d diseases with funny names we've never heard of, but that are going to show up at our doorstep. If you're concerned about human trafficking, if you're concerned about illegal drugs, if you're concerned about criminal gangs, if you're concerned about ma mass migration flows showing up at your doorstep in the Rio Grande River, or you're worried about people crossing boats in the Mediterranean then you have to worry about this issue set in these sets of countries that are very, di these are problems that are hard to solve. There's political, like you said, it's not just a development challenge, there's a security component and there's a political component. I think that was really critical to what you're saying. And I think as you, Ambassador Michael, as a former U.S. ambassador and as a former very senior development official and as a former lawyer, you, you talked about the issues of governance. You've seen, you are looking at this in this report from a number of different lenses, and I think that's, and this is a problem that requires looking at this problem from a variety of different perspectives, because not one approach is going to solve it. Do you agree with that? Yes, and I guess the one uh, point I would make about that is that I think it's not the 30 or 40. Uh, the United Kingdom, for example, which has a highly respected program for dealing with stability has about 70 countries where it looks at security and it looks at development. I think it's important not to stay in the mindset where we think there's 30 or 40 countries that are fragile and we'll put them in a box and treat them as if they are different. I think that what you really have to do is take into account the complexity of fragility as a phenomenon that has an economic and an environmental and a political and a security and a societal dimension and recognize that the degree to which those dimensions are out of whack, out of balance, is going to vary from crisis to resilience in different ways in different countries and that we should be looking not to put countries into a box, which means, for one thing, when you go to a country and you say, we want to work with you because you're a fragile state, the first reaction you'll say is, no, we're not. That's somebody else. That's our neighbor. And you get a negative reaction right off the bat. But how do you... But you Michael, that, I agree that with that. It puts the focus on the worst, most difficult cases, and it takes your eye off the ball for the opportunities for preventive measures that may help to avoid the crisis, which is a lot easier and a lot faster and a lot less expensive than trying to come in after the crisis has occurred and people are leaving and people all are fighting and all, all sorts of bad things so, so, are going so, on. So if you, have, if you had a little bit of money and a little bit of so, attention, you'd, you'd spend it on trying to prevent bad things from happening as yeah. opposed to after One the of the recommendations I came up with was let's treat fragility as we treat economic policy, as we treat human rights, as we treat other aspects of our foreign relations, and be alert to it and build into our strategies, security, political, and development, not development alone, not security yeah. alone, but 
that mix of factors that contribute to fragility and have that in mind as we deal with countries around the globe. And we may find out that there's 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. I don't know. It'll vary. And we have to look at each country on its own circumstances and have policies and programs and practices and diplomacy and security measures where appropriate that fit the circumstances of the individual country. We know that fragility presents increased risks to peace, to security and development. We know that an effective response demands country-specific efforts that involve bringing together diverse local and international actors who have a lot of differences, different mandates, different capabilities, different cultures, different staffing, <laughs> and different resources. And how do you bring that together? That's the challenge. But Ambassador, how do I, it, you have to, I agree that if I show up at Sierra Leone's door, and I'm not meaning to pick on Sierra Leone, and I say you're a fragile country, that, that's probably that we're getting off, I'm getting off on the wrong foot. Yes. I agree with that. But how do we talk about it? How should we classify it? How do we, how do we, I, and I know that the World Bank as a UN agency has to kind of deal with this, and they they have some funny term, and yeah. I think the like OECD, us, yeah. and I guess that when you were at the OECD, I don't know if the OECD has a term for this, the, the kind of a diplomatic term. We spoke of difficult partnerships. Oh! Yeah. But, but I think I think so. I, I so well. Those put the countries into a box. You see, and I, I, I'm saying get away, get them I, out of the box. I, it's it's very tempting for me to put them in the box. So I, I I'm trying to take them out of the box. So how should we take them out of the box? Okay, I'm saying first of all, uh, let's look at context specific impediments to stability and development in each country, rather than a generic formula. And then let's focus on what are the key factors that are impeding peace and stability and development in that country with a major emphasis on local responsibility and local problem identification. And then uh, let's stick with those key factors. I think one of the things that, that is done wrong is there's a tendency to go into a country, let's say our neighboring country of Haiti, and say, well, you have a problem with your education system, you have a problem with your health system, you have a problem with your financial management, you have a problem with your roads, and we have this grand strategy that'll do, and they don't have the ability to deal with that wider range and comprehensive development <laughs> and comprehensive security, so it, it it fails of its own weight. I think we need to focus on what are the important things that are important to the local folks and are important enough to the international community that there will be enduring support for working on those key issues. Then I think that that focused support can empower local ownership, can increase local responsibility, and it can build trust among the different factions within a divided society. Let, let me just, just dwell on that for a minute. I think one of the issues that you touch on in this report, and I know you have a sensitivity to as a former ambassador, is the issue of politics in these societies. Yes. And 
If I think about a country like Haiti, I think many of the problems of Haiti are political in nature. And I think, if I think about a country like the Congo, I think a lot of the problems of the Congo are at root of problems of politics in nature. Now, that's a, those are gross simplifications of both those countries, and there are country experts and regional experts that would say yes, but do we not do a very good job either because in the international development sphere we sort of try and not think about the politics? How, do we, how should we think about this issue of politics? I think this is really a key point, and uh, the multilateral development institutions, I think, set the, the pattern uh, because their charters all contain that uh, no political <laughs> uh, motives for their action uh, constraint. And they sometimes interpreted that as saying, well, we don't want to talk to anybody about governance issues. <laughs> we just want to treat, corruption. treat development as if it were something... Off to the side. Yeah, uh, free of politics. The and first, development is not free of politics. The, the, worst, the first time a World Bank president used the word corruption was in 1996? Yes. Right? Publicly? Yep. I was in the room, and you could hear the breath <laughs> taken in by the people in the room who were shocked by that. Now, uh, I will say in... Uh, defense of my, my former agency, USAID, we were doing financial management and anti-corruption programs as a part of our governance work, certainly in Latin America, uh, beginning in the 1980s. So, we, so AID was working on corruption before it was cool? Oh, yes. Uh, we, we had somebody who came over from the, uh, the GAO <laughs> to work, who was an auditor, and who did things like uh, support the organization of state audit agencies in Latin America. <laughs> uh, now, that's a long slog. That is not something that happens quickly, and corruption is certainly still very much with us and a big problem when we look at the future of development and we see that uh, financing for development is not going to come so much from development assistance, but from the growth of economies in the developing countries, and we look at the influence of corruption and the impact that has. So it's still a big issue, but it is something that I think uh, we've been willing to take on, and that politics, uh, we look now at political economy analysis as a part of uh, trying to understand the situation in which development cooperation takes place. So I think there's a growing recognition. Converting that recognition into practice is still a challenge. So, Ambassador, I wanted to ask you about, and I think you referenced this in your report, that there was a rack-up, and you were involved with the rack-up of, without putting countries in a box, and I think we've, we've had this conversation in this podcast, but when you first did, a, when there was a first sort of classification of countries that might be kind of classified as fragile without, you know, in the 1990s, and then if you were to do a rack up of countries that are experiencing some sort of fragility or difficult partnership, is it fair to say that most of those countries that were in the 1990s and when you first put that list together are the same set of countries today? I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that when we first set up some proposed international development goals, and we looked at countries that were furthest from the goals, the 
countries that were on that list of the, the bottom quintile uh, furthest from the goals uh, looked very much like uh, current lists of fragile states that are compiled by any of a number of organizations. So and, you know, the, Afghanistan was on the list. Yeah. The Democratic Republic of Congo was on the list. You know, Haiti uh, was on the Haiti list. Haiti was on the list. But, but Ambassador, I just just for, for your listeners' edification, so when you were at the Major League Baseball Commission of Development, you were at the DAC at the OECD, I think is it fair to say that the OECD and the DAC were one of the primary architects and primary drivers of the first Millennium Development Goal. Is that a fair statement? Well, certainly the proposals that we made, which came out of a whole host of UN conferences, were before the UN General Assembly at the time of the Millennium Summit and influenced the shaping of the Millennium Development Goals. There were certainly, if you look at the Millennium Development Goals and you look at what the OECD proposed, uh, there's a lot of... of there, uh, there was a I, lot of DNA. There's yeah. a lot of oh, DNA sure. there. I, I, I sure. always thought that was the... I knew that was the case, but I think just for everyone who may be listening that may not remember that history, that the first Millennium Development Goals well, had had a number, uh, a, a small number of, of parents, if I can put it that way, and one of the parents was some of the work that the DAC and the OECD were no, doing. I think, I think certainly it's fair to say that we That's contributed to... In a significant the, way. The, uh, ...to the Millennium Development Goals. And, and, goal. and so... So as part of that, what you were saying, as part of that exercise, when you did a rack-up of countries, who was closest to these notional goals as part of that exercise, it turned out that they were largely fragile and conflict-affected states, basically, or difficult partners, or whatever you want to call them. They were furthest away. We're furthest away. <laughs> yeah. We're going to come up with a new term, okay. furthest away. Okay. And, but if, but then if you, and now that you, so you did that in the late, mid to late 90s. Yeah. If you and then when if part of this exercise now, if you look at the list that you have in your report, it's you said it's not a perfect overlap, but there are many countries there, that have stayed. There are, and I say I my preference is not to put countries on a list and not to label them, but rather look at fragility as a risk that threatens peace, security, and development, and be alert to it in your relations with that country. I think for the U.S. in particular, uh, we need to strengthen interagency coordination. We have to recognize that this is not just a development problem, not just a security problem, not just a political problem, but when we have a persistence in a fragile situation in a country, we have to look at what are the instruments of policy that are available to us. We have some cases, I, I could cite Libya as one, where we're doing some positive things that are development related, and we're also imposing sanctions and some bad actors in that country. So it's not just using development alone, it's using all of the instruments of policy to deal with a phenomenon that is uh, a threat to safety, to security, a threat to peace, and a threat to development. Ambassador, I have to ask you, though, why are these problems so hard to solve? Oh, there are, I think, uh, needs for attention to the incentive frameworks within the countries concerned and within the international community. There is a tendency 
of any development agency to want to take credit for, for progress. And that gets in the way of trying to look for accountability, responsibility, and local ownership. I think there is a tendency for politicians everywhere to want to not invest in prevention, <laughs> but to wait until something bad happens and then want to react to it and react to it in ways that they hope will produce quick results. Uh, so I think we really look, need to look at uh, the political incentives and the financial incentives uh, that influence everybody in the international community, the developing countries, the fragile countries, uh, and the developed countries, and the multilateral uh, international organizations, uh, so that uh, we can... Uh, come together in addressing this threat to security, to peace, and to development. There are some efforts underway uh, on the inter in the international sphere. There will be a UN General Assembly meeting on sustainable peace uh, late in April. Uh, there will be a meeting of the high-level political forum on sustainable development that will look at governance issues Goal 16 coming up next year, and there has been an effort to try to revitalize what is called the New Deal for dealing in, in, with fragility that uh, is, uh, has potential for having the more focused, the more broadly based in that they're not simply looking at development, not simply looking at aid, but looking at <laughs> fragility as a multi dimensional phenomenon. So I think there are ways in which we can get at these impediments, but it's going to ultimately to take a political will for all of us to give this enough importance so that we give it priority. So if, if you had the incoming Secretary of State in front of you, or you were in front of the National Security Advisor, what would be the argument as to why the U.S. should care about these countries? Well, I think the obvious argument is that we should care about these countries because when they deteriorate, they create risks for all of us. They are the sources of forced migration. They are the, the sources of spread, spread of infectious diseases. They are infected by terrorists and organized crime uh, where they can provide safe harbor for people who will leave their country and do bad things in other countries. So it is bad for development, bad for stability, uh, bad, for our security. bad for our security. So really, we need to pay attention to this. And if we do this in a way that brings in the international community, that brings in the different dimensions of our military capabilities, of our political capabilities, of our economic instruments, as well as our development work, that we can make a difference. Ambassador, I agree. And I think uh, this was a really important report. I think it was people voted with their feet. You had a very strong turnout for the public event that we did for you a couple weeks ago. And I think it's a testament to your, your work and people, how many people admire you here in Washington. But I also think, Ambassador, I think the topic is timely and I think it was 
really, I think we were very appreciative here at CSS that you would invest so much of your time and expertise on this, because I think this is a great, one of the great challenges that we face as a country and the international community faces is how do we, how do we solve, I'm hoping that 20 years from now when I do this podcast, 20 years from now and we're sitting here together, that we're, you know, that I'm hoping that the list has changed and we'll be able to say it's, it's changed. Well, we've uh, mentioned uh, the need for political will, and one of the ways that you develop political will is by expanding the knowledge base that informs the public and political leaders and uh, people who are in a position to, to make those decisions. And CSIS, I think, deserves a lot of credit for having done just that and continuing to do that. Well, Ambassador, I'm very, very grateful for the partnership that we have together on this. I know. There's a lot more work to be done on fragility. Thanks for investing your time, and I think this is to be continued. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mr.